0: A podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Ag Reminders. Aboriginal author and historian Bruce Pascoe has turned on its ear any notion that our Indigenous peoples were simply hunter-gatherers prior to the arrival of Europeans. Indeed, they were making bread from our native grasses some 30,000 years ago, and at least 20,000 years before the Egyptians, who were previously thought to be the first bakers. The native Australian grasses they used have evolved to completely adapt to our unique climate of droughts and flooding rains, and yet the European-based agricultural methods adopted by settlers has largely ignored their potential as a source of grain, or even genetic material that can be reliably grown in Australian conditions. Here to speak about the potential native grasses have for agricultural future is AgriMinder Dr Peter Ampt. Peter is currently a consultant in ecological and regenerative agriculture and natural resource management. He's one of Australia's most respected academics in this area and has extensive experience in ecological agriculture. He coordinated the University of Sydney's Faculty of Agriculture and Environment program, Shaping Our Landscapes, and jointly coordinated the faculty's Wingaramura Indigenous program, including setting up the grasses for grain for Indigenous students. Welcome to AgriMinders, Peter. Thanks, Chris. I've been fascinated by a book that I've been reading recently. It was released in 2014 by Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu. I had absolutely no idea that the Aboriginal people were making bread in Australia 17,000 years before the
1: earliest Egyptians were, and they were always thought to be the earliest. How how come we didn't know this? It's a remarkable book and uh, a remarkable history, and and I guess it... um it shows how, I guess, systematically we seem to have ignored a lot of the evidence that was in front of us as to what Indigenous people were doing here for, for millennia. Uh, yeah, why Why didn't we know about it? Uh, I guess that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I guess what Bruce Pascoe says is that there was a deliberate ignoring of a lot of the evidence that that Indigenous people really were a part of this environment and really were utilising the landscape. They were I guess, more willing to accept the idea of hapless people wandering in the, in the wilderness, picking up food where they could, whereas what Bruce Pascoe tells us is that really it was a very deliberate and a very um, well-organised and a very uh, long-lived process of managing land for their benefit, I guess.
0: So, Peter, in in Bruce's book, he refers to uh, investigations that he's done of of what they were trying to do, but from a scientific point of view, the disappointment is that the early explorers never really sent botanists out with a lot of their teams, so they had no idea what grasses they were, what seed crops they were. They didn't even realise that they were cutting the seed heads off and laying them under those windrows so they could actually dry them out with a view of winnowing the grain and then, of course, grinding it and making it into bread.
1: Do we know scientifically more about that process now? Very little. Really, we've had very little research into native grasses. There's been a number of people who've looked at it. In fact, there's a group of landholders who who formed the Stiper Native Grasses Association who, you know, when they started to look at native grasses way back in the probably the 1990s, um, they were looking around for evidence of, of knowledge of all of these native grasses, and there's relatively little knowledge of that. Uh, there's been a certain amount of research done on it, but not really from the perspective of recognising that they were a major food source. It was more just a standard botanical look at them and probably for their benefits as a pasture. So, But really, you know, agricultural science jumped on the idea that uh, we needed to improve... The species that were here, we intri- we added introduced species. We added superphosphate. We added subclover to our um, pastures to try and make uh, more productive pastures because we we decided that there was not enough phosphate in the ground, and so we needed to add phosphate, and we needed to have grasses that responded to that phosphate, and and legumes that responded to that phosphate. So I think it, to my mind, it's kind of like a um a tunnel vision that really just decided that. The native grasses were poor, and I think there's good reasons for that. Um, when sheep spread across the landscape in the early years of settlement, the most nutritious, the tenderest, the the least uh, able to withstand grazing grasses. Disappeared very quickly. Like but, kangaroo grass, for example. I remember kangaroo grass.
0: when I was young, Thermida australis, That's they used right. to talk about. And, That's right. and of course, the farmers used to say, Yeah, it's great, but it disappears in the first year, so it's That's no right. use to us. That's right. Why didn't it go out when the kangaroo's grazing it?
1: Well, I guess it's because kangaroos move around. They, they're in mobs, but not big mobs like sheep mobs. Um, they are relatively territorial, but if there's not green pick, they move. Uh, if it gets dry, they move. Whereas when the sheep spread out across New South Wales, for example, there were millions of sheep across New South Wales on what looked like very fertile landscapes. But once the dry period, the inevitable dry period started, people had no way of getting the sheep off the land and they stayed there until they completely decimated the land. So those um, millennium droughts and the, the droughts that have happened through, through the history of Australia, really with too many sheep on the landscape fenced in meant that the land was pushed down very very quickly and i think probably the density of the sheep was greater the nature of their feet is different the nature of the way they graze is different so all of those things are different from what kangaroo herbivory or kangaroo eating the grass would have been so uh, i think you know it's a, it's a orders of magnitude more damaging to the environment to have many millions of sheep locked there for long periods of time where, you know, we know now from our history now, um, there's probably more kangaroos now than there ever was before because the modification we've done to the rangelands have made it more favourable for kangaroos, whereas for most other species, uh, native species such as the small mammals, they've just kind of disappeared. Um, But the kangaroos have done really well. And so we think of kangaroo populations as quite high now, whereas early explorers suggest that the kangaroo populations were much lower when uh, Europeans first came here. And even in the earlier days of agri- agriculture in Australia, of European agriculture, there were fewer kangaroos than there are today. So I think the, the pressure from kangaroos was much, much less and of a different uh, nature to the pressure from sheep, especially those that farmers can't get rid of because it was for wool, obviously. So, um, you know, they can hang on to the sheep for longer as the the ground dries, they didn't know when it was going to rain. Uh, they couldn't really get rid of the sheep. It was their source of income. Wool prices were high, so they wanted to hang on to it. So all of those factors militated against being able to reduce grazing pressure, and people really weren't talking in those terms. They just thought, like in England, you just keep grazing and it'll always rain. Whereas in Australia, it's very, very different to that. So when you think of it in those terms and also think in social terms, the, the difficulty of, of a grazier being able to get rid of his stock. Nowadays, graziers know uh, that they've got to cut their stock back really early as it starts drying out. Otherwise, they push the ground into a state where it takes much long to recover and they lose soil and all of those things. We, the, the early settlers didn't know that stuff. They had no idea of how vulnerable our soils were, for example. And so they pushed ahead with with what they thought was the right thing to do, and the, the the dollar was there, the money was there. But it was you know, all European. Australia riding on the sheep's back. It was the one commodity that we could we and the non-perishable commodity that we could export and generate all those export incomes. It was what the prosperity of Australia was based on in those early years. So it's not surprising with all of that rhetoric that people didn't want to let go of stock when it was clear that they needed to. And they couldn't, they couldn't actually transport it, you know. They'd have to drove it for long distances and everyone wanted to drive. So, you know, when you think about the, the logistics of it, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, with that many sheep out in the landscape, it caused massive devastation.
0: So Bruce Pascoe suggested that most of the uh, grasses that they were collecting the seed from was, in fact, themeter grasses, uh, kangaroo grass, wallaby grass and so on. And uh, But, in fact, there are other cereals and wild native cereals. There's a native rice, there's a native sorghum. Now, I guess they're probably annuals and one of the advantages is perennials, but what do you see has the greatest potential as a food and
1: pasture-producing crop in Australia? I don't think we know that yet. I think we need to do more work. Um, Ted Lafroy got a Eureka, pl- Eureka Prize for looking at Microlina or Weeping Grass as a perennial uh, grain crop. That's uh, also a very, very good pasture grass. So that's one that's already been looked at with some level of detail. There's panics. There's a number of different panicum species. There's um, native millets. Uh, Not all of those are annuals. A lot of them are perennials. Uh, There are native rices that are perennial as well. So, you know, there's a range of different potential grasses that could be utilised. And, uh, I mean, there's a group of us at the University of Sydney, Associate Professor Tina Bell, Uh, Dr. Rebecca Cross and Dr. Angela Patterson are are looking at this at the moment, trying to get, you know, we haven't got a big grant yet, we're chasing grant money to try and look at a range of different species and we want to approach it from a number of perspectives. The first perspective is what were the species and where that were utilised by Indigenous people? So for that, there's a, a social research, a cultural research element to that. So to go to Indigenous communities around the the landscape where there's still traditional knowledge of what grasses were used, um, then to look at the grasses from those areas. Because one of the things Bruce Pascoe talked about is that there's evidence that Indigenous people domesticated species, which is one of the elements of agriculture. So because they were collecting seed, because they were cultivating, they were sowing it, they were covering it with soil, they were irrigating it. Because of that, that changes the genotype of the of the grass itself. And so uh, having evidence of a more uniformity of of uh, the species that might be in the areas that were heavily utilised by Aboriginal people will give us an idea of the extent to which they were already domesticated, and so the characteristics that were good for food plants would be in those ecotypes that are in the areas where they were utilised. So that's one element of, of the potential project. Another element is, of course, once we know what those grasses are, is to look at the agronomy of those grasses, look at the uh, the way in which they produce their seed, their size of the seed, the the way in which the seed is dropped when it's mature, because that's one of the things about crop plants. They hang on to their seed until they're harvested, and so you don't lose seed before harvest. So if you want to develop a new species for cropping, there's a whole lot of things you need to do to make it work as a commercial crop. Um, The other side of it is, of course, what are the what are the grain qualities of these seeds?
0: Well, were the Aboriginals mainly growing these? They were very conscious of feeding the, the wildlife that they hunted and, and ate from a meat point yes. of view. Yes, But they obviously also, we've now discovered, were grinding this grain and making yes. some sort of dampery type yes. unleavened bread, as yes. I understand it. Yes, What was the proportion of their use of these crops? Was it mainly for feeding kangaroos or was it mainly for the seed?
1: Well... I guess there were certain areas where they were collecting it for human food, everywhere the kangaroos would be utilising it, for example. So I'm not sure that they were specifically feeding grain to kangaroos. They were just, Bill Gamage in his book, uh, The Greatest Estate, talks about the Indigenous people having kind of landscape templates that they tried to implement, which would, which would include areas that were kept clear through burning that would have fresh green grass. So kangaroos would eat the young grass, not the rank grass with seed. They would be eating the the foliage, uh, the young grass rather than the, the grain. So whether or not that grain then in the areas where the kangaroos ate it would become a grain or whether that stayed as just a fodder crop for kangaroos, we can only really speculate. We don't really understand that
0: So if you actually look at the areas, I think they've mapped where they found grinding stones and evidence of of actually making that grain into a flour that could then be used. And they've used grindstones as a way of doing that. And the oldest one I think that's been found is. 30,000 years old that's in the right. middle of South Australia. That's right. And there is a big arc, which they've got a name for that arc, Tidsdale's Arc or something. Yeah, that's right. And it goes all the way up through New South Wales, Western Queensland, across through Northern Territory, and then down through the Western Australia. And, in fact, if you look at the area of that, it's more than the cropland we currently Absolutely. crop in Australia. Much and greater. a lot of it seems to go through areas we wouldn't dream of cropping, well no. above the goida line where cropping is not supposed to be viable yep. and well into desert country and what how did they actually harvest grains in those places
1: Well I guess I guess when we think of cropping we're thinking of annual cropping where you prepare ground put fertilizer in apply the put the seed in and grow it over a defined period of time when there has to be rain in that period of time otherwise you're in trouble The only exception to that is where you've got a heavy clay and you've got enough water in it when you sow to go right through to harvest, but those soils are fairly rare in Australia, so you know you need rain in that period. And we know that Australian climate is one of the most uncertain climates in the world, and so um, you need to go to the well-watered parts of the of the um, of the Australian continent to have enough reliable rain to do an annual crop. Whereas if you're talking about perennial grasslands, you've got a whole range of species within a perennial grasslands. They're not monocultures. They're quite biodiverse. You've got a number of different grass species, plus you've got a whole range of non-grass species in the mix. They're perennials. So instead of investing all of their energy in grain, they're investing most of their energy in the roots and the, the, the butt of the grass. And so a lot of these grasses are tussocky grasses that produce a large butt and grow bigger and bigger over the years. And if they're they're subject to a lot of dry, then they go into a kind of dormancy, but retain their living tissue down in the base and in the roots, and their root systems go very much deeper so that they can utilize water as the surface soil gets drier and drier and drier. So when you think about a perennial system, it's going to be able to cope with the uncertainty of, 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 of rainfall in Australia far better than an annual system, which must have rain in its short life cycle for it to produce grain and to reproduce itself. So so really the, the idea of a perennial grassland producing food only happens with grazing, whereas clearly Indigenous people were using a perennial grassland as a source of grain. Now that's very, very different model to a normal annual cropping. That, we, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a huge amount of because sense. Because when there's not enough water to grow the grain, you've still got the pasture. That's right. And, and you know, you've also got vegetative material on the ground that will hold the soil together. So vast, number, vast areas of Australia have got fairly shallow, fairly light topsoils, uh, and underneath that topsoil, often they've got uh, a clay subsoil. And many of those clay subsoils are highly unstable when they're exposed and wet. And so keeping a skin of vegetation on the surface is incredibly important. And that's not what happened with early pastoralism. So when the sheep spread out across the landscape, the early explorers, as, as uh, outlined in Bruce Pascoe's book, the early explorers said that the the ground was soft. Even though it wasn't wet, the hooves of their horses were sinking in to the fetlock, which is, you know, 10, 15 centimetres, and they and they were spongy. Now, that indicates that there was a layer of maybe, you know, 10, 15 centimetres of, of uh, humified soil on the surface, which is very open, so when you get a heavy fall of rain, the rain will go straight through that, it won't run off, and it will soak in down deep. Whereas now what we've done, we've removed that whole... Organic layer to a large extent, and you know, especially in a drought with heavy pressure from sheep, you end up with bare, crusted soil. And when you get rain falling on that, it doesn't soak in; it runs off. It creates gullies. It creates a much more violent flow of water in the rivers, which creates gullies and deep chasms in the rivers. So this is what what you see all around Australia's landscape. <music>
0: We have a lot of information available to us today. We have satellite technology. We have information on virtually every square metre of every farm and that makes it easy to be smart in hindsight. When the European farmers came over, of course, without any access to that, they, I guess they were guessing. Do you think that there were things there that they should have picked up or ignored and if they did ignore them, why did they ignore them? Was it just because they didn't want to know them or do you think
1: they generally just missed them? I think that's a really good question and a complex question. I think there's a number of different aspects to that. I guess one is that many of the people who came over here weren't farmers anyway, and so they took up on the land even if they didn't have experience of farming back.
0: Mostly Irish convicts.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's, one, there's one component. I guess another component is that the species were entirely different to what they would have known even if they had knowledge of back home the species that they encountered in australia were very different the soils they encountered were very different the nature of the climate was very different we know now because we've got climate records going back how irregular australia's climate is how unpredictable it is they had no idea of that they came from a climate where it you know a drought was 2 or 3 weeks long you know whereas we're talking about droughts that are three, five, seven, eight years long. I mean, they would never have encountered that. And so I don't think we're judging. And, and the, the other side to that is, of course, the cultural side. Uh, when people, when the Europeans colonised Australia, you know, there was a very clear culture, social, I guess, imperative that European culture was supreme, that the, uh, the colon- it was a justification of colonisation, if you like, but it was a very strong mindset that, um, you know, we are the supreme beings in a sense, and we have a duty to bring uh, the other people up to our level of civilization. So, being able to turn that back and say, you know, maybe there's some knowledge here that we don't know about from these inverted commas savages, wasn't something that people could entertain as a as a way forward. So, you know, I mean. You can you can see the reasons why I think through those sorts of arguments, and I think to a large extent those attitudes still continue today. Um, you know we've got we've got groups of farmers now who are really embracing the idea of native perennial native grass pastures. There's a, a strong community of practice of these regenerative grazers now, where managing uh, grazing animals differently stimulates the return of native perennial grasses and provides a system which is much more uh, resilient to dry and and heavy rain after periods of dry and where they can adjust their um, numbers of stock relatively quickly to make sure that they're not overstocking. And yet many conventionally trained agriculturalists or agronomists can't accept this as a as a useful way forward. And so there's still that very strong... Well, I mean, I think there's a really strong perception that Australian native grasses are unpalatable, non-nutritious, and not good enough, not productive enough, not useful enough as productive species. But I think that's coloured by the native perennials that survived from those early years of pastoralism, whereas the most productive and palatable ones disappeared early. And those are still in the system. So when these regenerative grazers start to change their grazing management and start to see the grasses come back, a lot of those are highly productive, highly nutritious, and highly palatable. Um, But the work is not done on them. And there's also techniques within the agricultural research sort of bag of tricks which you know you you take total feed on offer and you look at the nutritional value of that total feed on offer whereas what animals will do if they're faced with a range of different species in a pasture they will select the the species that work for them not just the the luscious ones because they're ruminants they need to shandy the highly nutritious with the fiber and they they know how to do that they've got, biochemical mechanisms in their system that allow them to do that as soon as the food goes in and it hits the rumen they get really early biochemical signals as to what that food is doing to their system and so they know whether to continue eating that food or whether to go to something else and so there are these really really good feedback mechanisms that if animals are offered a range of foods will keep themselves healthy by selecting the mix of food that is ideal for them. So, you know, whereas where, you know, conventional agriculture will say, well, you have a fodder crop of oats or you have a fodder crop of, of um, and you put them in there. Whereas if you've got a mixed sward of a whole range of different species, some, some have gone to seed and they're, they're drying out. Some are still growing actively at the base. The animals go in there and they, they select what they need and it makes them very much healthier. So I think there's just a different way of looking at the livestock pasture interaction that these regenerative grazers have really embraced. And I think conventional agriculture's yet to catch up with what they're doing. We've talked a lot about
0: grazing grasses. Can yes. we talk a little bit about seed, grain seed grasses? Yeah. now? I'm interested to know whether you think that the biggest contribution of Australian native seed-growing crops, and a lot of these will be annuals, will be genetic material to improve our current cultivars or whether they are standalone. Can I use the example of of Australian wild rice, for example? Now, it's the same genus, a as what we currently use for producing commercial crops. For some reason, the only country I could find that has actually used genetic material from Australian native rice in their own breeding programs is Japan. I guess it's not strange because they eat a lot of rice, but we don't seem to have done that here. But where is the biggest contribution? Is it just genetic material, or do you think that they are standalone crops that we could make
1: more of? I guess the vision I have for it, I think there's a whole lot of stuff that plant breeders can do by recognising the native flora that we have and working out how best to utilize that in terms of enhancing genes that are already there in a sense. So it's not recombinant technology, but it's uh, enhancing genes that are already there. So so there's a range of, it's like genetic modification is a broad church from something weird weird and wacky from science fiction through to very, very incremental changes that happen relatively easily. And I think, well, that's, I guess, another view of mine is that we the green side of our our um politics rejects genetic modification so there's that uh, aspect of native australian grasses there's the potential for native australian grasses to be bred through normal conventional breeding to make them more um suitable as cropping plants so for example selecting for grasses that hold their seed in the head so they're easy to harvest selecting for grasses that have got larger seeds you know, there's a range of different things that we've already done with wheat and all the other domestic crop plants that we could do with these native Australian plants. But I think from my point of view, because my interest is in how can we better integrate um, environmental and production objectives. So from my perspective, the best use is to stimulate native grasslands and use those to sow annual crops into. So we've already got the development of pasture cropping and no-kill cropping. So you mean our normal food crops, the wheats and barleys and everything that we grow now? Yeah. So already we've got um, innovative farmers who are using grazing management to get a grassland, which is resilient and all the things that we've talked about. They're collecting native grass seed from that and selling it, which has got a high value very often. And they can also um, cut a, a line through that and put a crop in there. And, uh, in the areas where there's a lot of summer growing grasses, you put a winter, winter cereal in there and, uh, you know, you might, you might hit the grassland with a herbicide or you might just graze it very heavily before you sow the crop. You put the crop in there, maybe with fertilizer or without, depending on where you stand on that. And if you've got the right season, the crop will come up and you'll be able to strip it. If you don't have the right season, the crop will grow to a certain extent and will become part of the pasture. So this is what's known as pasture cropping. So I see, especially in the areas that are um, in the wheat sheep areas, which are sort of the mixed farming areas, trying to stimulate that grassland across most of the areas. And if you want a crop, you put it in The grassland. You don't get rid of the native grasses to do that. You just uh, sod seed it directly in or direct seed it directly into the pasture. So, that to me is so there you've got grazing from the native grassland that, if it's working well, doesn't require fertilizer at all, according to some, or certainly much less fertilizer, which is good for the future. Um, You've got the potential for stripping um, native grass seed from that. Uh, especially if you've got good strong stands of a particular species. And then you've got the potential of sowing conventional crops into those. grassland. So would that be grass the best land. seed
0: to go for, do you think? The one that where it's hung on to in the panicle a bit longer? And,
1: yeah, uh, I think so. I guess nat- it's In a the combination. native seeds, I mean. Why, which a, one? Do any particular type? Whether it be the sorghums or the... Well, I guess we've got some scientific work to do on this. And um, Angela Patterson out at Narrabri for Sydney Uni is working on this, so... We're working on a number of different uh, grass species. We're collecting samples of that. We're finding out what the flour made from that grass seed is like. What are its components? What are its baking qualities? What's its flavour like? Could it be added to a conventional artisan bread, for example, so that you can say this is sourdough with with kangaroo grass seed or, you know, whatever. You know, it could be not necessarily the whole of the loaf, but it could be a component of the loaf much like, you know, you mix spelt or you mix rye in with, with wheat flour to produce a loaf of bread. I mean, there's that kind of thing.
0: Given the areas that the, that the Aboriginals used to crop well above, you know, in, in areas which would normally be too dry for growing our traditional crops, do you think, though, that that kind of uh, growing of the crops mixed up with the grasses may allow
1: us to grow European crops places where we couldn't grow them before? Possibly. I mean, with... Um we know that in the very dry areas uh, of Australia where annual cropping is not normally possible, if you've got a, um, a, a lake bed and you get a heavy fall of rain, you can often go a crop on that lake bed without any further rain falling. Now, if we've got the vast landscape covered by thick humus where you get a heavy fall of rain and you get good absorption of water there, then there'll be more water held in the landscape for a conventional crop, I, I can see the potential for that more than we have if we've got hard-baked surface, you know, where you don't get good water infiltration. So, yeah. You know, we've got 27% of the world's
0: grasses, but only 5% of the world's land area. Amongst all that, what is the future, do you think, now for, for better use of these grasses, which have clearly been adapted over millennia to, to our climate here?
1: Well, There will only be a future if there are committed groups of scientists working closely with farmers to make that happen. We know that developing a new food is a very long and slow process. Uh, There's been lots of native Australian fruits, for example, which still remain a very minor part of our diet, and yet they could be much more. So our experience tells us to develop a new crop, you've got to in parallel develop the agronomy of that crop and the breeding of that crop at the same time as you're developing a market because you're starting with no harvestable crop and no existing market. So whenever you've got that, you need a a coordinated program where you're developing a number of components of it at the same time. That doesn't come without... A significant investment. So I think the potential is there for native grasses. If we have, for example, a, you know, a a university, a group of universities, a a, a CRC maybe that's looking specifically at that with a good investment, good level of public investment, it's not going to happen without a good level of public investment because there have to be multiple components of that That's what's needed to actually make progress here. Otherwise, we'll be talking about this, doing podcasts about it in 10 years' time, and we'll be still talking about the potential of it, but it won't be any further. So it needs to be a really strong and concerted uh, program over a period of, say, five, seven years, the life of a cooperative research center, a seven-year period. Uh, It needs to be that so that at the end of that, we have three or four potential perennial grass crops. We have the development of the the technology or the further development of the technology for sowing conventional crops into a grassland. We have the technology for stripping native grass seed from a grassland so that we've got that as a market. So those are the, in my, my view, those are the things that need to happen in parallel. But is this a kind of... Academic interest, or in
0: terms of Australia's place in producing uh, food for a world where we currently only know how to make thirty percent of the food we're going to need in fifty years' time, I
1: think is this got a significant role in that? I think it's got a huge role. i think I think the idea of native grasslands in any continent, native grasslands being the foundation of of the landscape with opportunistic um cropping directly into those when the conditions are right. That's got a huge benefit. I mean, I guess there's the argument now of uh, moving away from animals as a source of food, but that denies the fact that there's vast areas of land that will never be suitable for conventional cropping because the soils aren't right, the topography isn't right, and the water is not available. So there's vast areas that will never be usable for cropping that can be used for grazing animals, uh, that produce both fibre and food for people from land that can't be used for cropping, having that land covered by a diverse grassland and utilising it opportunistically for cropping and utilising it for source of fibre and, and, and uh, food seems to me a really important thing. I mean, rangelands, grasslands across the globe are incredibly important. And so this regenerative work that's been done in Australia and in other parts of the world on the way ma- grazing can be managed brings back those grasslands and all of those native grasses, which I think are incredibly important. Dr. Peter Ann, thank you for being our agri today. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Chris.
0: I've been surprised and fascinated at learning from Peter about a resource right under our noses, that our euro-tinted glasses have blinded our predecessors, and indeed us, too. The question is, how will we integrate these species and use them sustainably? To feed the world in 50 years' time, we need to continue to search for solutions to our food production problems. And the use of grasses and crops evolved to our Australian conditions over millennia, and their use by 40,000 years of Indigenous harvesting and bread-making seems to offer great potential to our food production cropping of the future, whether by integration of native crops within our existing cropping cycles or indeed by the use of their evolved genetic material. I'm Chris Russell. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the Agriminds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.